This morning's reading is from Exodus chapter 16, and that's on page 73 in the Church Bible. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said. You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert And there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. At evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Amen. Morning, everybody. Hi. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray as we start this new sermon series that um, you'd speak to us today and also over the next six weeks about being your work in progress. In Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're at the start of a new sermon series, picking up from somewhere we left quite a while ago in March 2022, um, where we followed the salvation story of God's people, uh, Israel being liberated from slavery in Egypt. And this is titled, 
work in progress. The people of Israel are in this second part of Exodus, a work in progress. They are not yet what God desires them to be. He's got a magnificent plan for them, that they will be his treasured possession, a holy people, a light to the nations, language like a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, that all people would look at this family of tribes and think, wow, what would it be like to worship the God of Israel? That they would see this people and they would be taken aback. They would pause and have to scratch their head in wonder. What would it be like to worship a God who cares for us as a parent cares for children? God desires to work a miracle in his people, transforming them from slaves into his children. And there's great parallels in this story with The Christian life, if we've had an encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we recognize that before we met Jesus, we were slaves. Slaves ultimately to sin and to death, but, you know, bound by our selfishness, perhaps by addictions or by our pride. I think you can be slaves to your insecurities. Um... Uh, slaves to thinking I have to put myself ahead because no one else will, Uh, self-dependence. And of course, praise be to God, for anyone who's a follower of Jesus, that's all in our past. How wonderful it is that since I met Jesus, I walked through life with a poise, a sense of confidence, knowledge that I am the beloved in Christ, uh, that I know all of God's promises for me and know exactly who he's called me to be. (laughs) <laughs> if, if only. <laughs> I was having my hair cut recently at the barbers on Frisinghall Road up there, and he's of the Muslim faith, and yeah, I, probably, I think I've told you this story before, but he, he was just so curious, the question that he asked me. He asked me, what are the X's on Christian graves? And I, <laughs> it took me a while to realize he's talking about crosses. And uh, I started talking with him about the centrality of the cross in the Christian faith, um, for followers of Jesus, the cross is like the Passover or like the passing through the Red Sea in the story we heard before. It's the point in history that for followers of Jesus, their slavery ended. Today, if you are in Christ, you're legally free. Something has happened to you. A stronger power than yourself, a liberator, a freedom fighter, fought for you on your behalf on the cross, on Calvary Hill. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, who lived the life you ought to have lived and more uncomfortably died the death, perhaps we ought to have died, you are free. I am free. The claim of the enemy, Satan, and all his cronies have no claim on you. The judgment has been passed. In Christ, you are the Father's beloved. Your sins are forgiven. You have a seat at the table. You are free. I love the way that um, Charles Wesley puts this in a hymn we're going to sing at the end. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? 
But let's look at the first few passages in our Exodus reading to find out what happens next. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Bit of context here. The Israelites, over generations, have cried out in their misery in slavery in Egypt. And God hears their cry and sends a deliverer. Moses. And eventually, after what is like a cosmic battle against God and the spiritual powers of Egypt, the uh, Israelites are free. But just as they're making their exodus, their exit from Egypt, uh, Pharaoh changes his mind and he chases them. Uh, And he, he traps them between his forces of chariots and the Red Sea. And I think that's where we get our English saying, between the devil and the deep blue sea. Um, And God works a miracle. He opens the Red Sea and they pass through the sea on dry land. He makes a way where there was no way. Leaving their slavery behind them. It's in the past. And the first thing that they do in chapter 15 is they sing a worship song to God, praising him for his deliverance. And then we have this passage. So they've been in the desert for approximately five minutes. <laughs> they've just sang, had a stonking time of worship. And then they say, it wasn't, was it really that bad in, in Egypt? Was it, was it really so bad? <laughs> I have a friend called Henry um, who talks about dirty nappy syndrome. I don't know whether any of you have ever experienced this. Uh, praise be to God that we're no longer in nappies, as in my children. But Zeke particularly would never tell me if he had pooed himself. Um, because although it felt very uncomfortable to be sitting in your own waist, I think for him the process of becoming clean was worse. Uh, so he would just wallow in it. Um, and so uh, how long has that been there, Zeke? <laughs> and I think you, you, know, you get the metaphor, uh, a slightly more, uh, a better metaphor. Um, Shawshank Redemption. So anyone a fan of Shawshank Redemption? Stephen King novel turned into a film. Uh, it's, it's the number one film on IMDb for good reasons. And it paints this idea so well. A number of, their pri- of the prisoners spend nearly their whole lives in prison. And this is Brooks, who's the librarian, And after a long stretch, he's released at the age of 73. Only he simply can't cope on the outside because his time in prison has shaped him. It's formed him. He's become institutionalized. And he simply can't bear freedom. I won't tell you any more about that story, but it's a great film to watch with lots of metaphors in it for the gospel. And that's what it was like for the Israelites. Their bodies were free, but in their hearts, they were still slaves. And it's the same for us. At least, I know it's the same for me. I know I've been rescued. I have assurance of the Father's love for me, yet in so many ways, I'm not free. And ultimately, this comes down to the title of this message, 
do I trust God? Do I trust? Do you trust me? God says to us, do I trust God? Do I believe that he is who he says he is? In a few weeks, we'll have the passage, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Um, I'd quite like to be just zapped by God. Zap! And then I'm a fully formed disciple of Jesus. Ping! Um, Or uh, I could do a vitamin, you know, every morning, along with the B12 and vitamin D. I could take my discipleship to Jesus pill, which I'm going to start marketing. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to pay for our solar panels. Um, (laughs) God desires to free each of our hearts from the things that enslave us despite our freedom in Jesus. Because just as God has a marvelous plan for the people of Israel... God has a marvelous plan for you. He desires the complete maturing of your character, that you would be all that he designed and loved for you to be. To fundamentally know that in Christ, you are God's beloved. That the one who knows you the best is the one who loves you the most. And flowing from this, all the fruits of the Spirit, that we would be among the most loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, and self-controlled people that anyone could find themselves meeting because of the gospel of Jesus. Now, if God could have given us a pill, or them a pill, I think he would have, but instead, we, like the people of Israel, are a work in progress. Which leads to a little later on in the passage. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and this is to be twice as much as they gather in the other days. So people grumble, and the Lord provides. Quail at night, and small birds, they're small birds, considered a delicacy in Egypt. I thought that was interesting. Um, And they fly until they get tired, and wherever they land, they just sleep, Um, which sounds like toddlers, doesn't it? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, manna in the wilderness, which um, is manna, the Hebrew for manna is literally, what is that? What is that? <laughs> and uh, notice that the Lord never calls it manna. It's always bread from heaven, bread from heaven. So I want to ask a few questions of the Bible. Firstly, why? Why bring the people out of Egypt and put them in the wilderness? Cana, the promised land, a land of abundance flowing with milk and honey, as the Bible describes it, it's hardly far away. It's maybe a week's walk. It's not a 40-year journey. And yet they find themselves wandering in the wilderness of Sinai. Why? God must be doing something. And the fact that it's recorded in Scripture must mean that he's trying to communicate something to us. One thing that is certainly true is suffering and adversity changes us, for better or for worse, actually. 
uh, if you go through a great grief, like, uh, I'm going to talk about great griefs, so there may be some of us who have experienced some of these, um, like the, the loss of a child or of a spouse, it could be a divorce, the premature end to a career that you loved, a debilitating illness for you or for a loved one. Um, you will be changed if you experience these things. It might be that actually you, you become more angry and resentful and bitter at the world and life. Or you may become more empathetic, uh, gentle and loving, more aware of the hardness of every human being's experience in life and what everyone is going through. It is undoubtedly true, as I thought about this, that some of the people I respect the most have gone through some of the worst times in their life. Uh, do you know anyone who's managed to get through their 20s, maybe their 30s? I think it's impossible once you get much older than that, where everything's just worked out for them. Can you, can you th think of anyone? You know, they're just born with the silver spoon in their mouth, gift of the gav, good-looking, athletic prowess. Um, I can think of a few people I went to school with who just, <laughs> just seemed to be like golden. Um, and uh, what are these people like? And I think often they are quite shallow and sometimes naive as to how life is. This is a very uncomfortable thing, um, and I think you don't have to look at the Bible to know this is true, but I think we do find it in this story. The places where we grow the most are often the places where we are most uncomfortable. The places where we grow the most are often the places where we are most uncomfortable. Now, I think logically this draws me to think something else. Is that to say that God was the author of all of those horrible things that happened to me, every wilderness experience that I may have gone through. And I, I think I draw some comfort from this, is that when God describes the creation of the world in Genesis, there is no wilderness or desert talked about in those first few chapters. There's no howling place, a place where nothing grows, where nothing can be sustained. And if you look at the Gospels, you just see so clearly that death is an aberration. It's wrong. Every time I've experienced uh, someone dying, there's always been a part of it where I just feel, this just feels wrong. Uh, and then you might think, you know, it's the natural course of life. But I think actually that feeling is something because it's right. It's something that the Bible witnesses to. When Jesus is, is at the grave of his friend Lazarus, he's angry and he's also weeping because he's not just angry about what's happened to Lazarus, he's angry at death, that this is what happens. And yet another story in the Gospels is straight after Jesus is affirmed as God's son at his baptism, he then is immediately led into the wilderness to be tested, uh, where Satan essentially asks Jesus, do you really trust God? Do you really trust him? I want to finish this point with a quote from a Timothy Keller sermon that I found really, well, profound. A desert is a place where your other sources of significance dry up. And what you need in a wilderness is not to go to God simply for your needs, but to go to God as the thing you need. Do you know the difference? You never know how wonderful, how clear, 
how deep, how cool, how delicious the water from his well is until your other brooks dry up and you're forced to go to his well. You don't realize God is all you need until he is all you have. The thing that makes a wilderness experience is things that were your hope and your safety, they're threatened and maybe they've been taken away and you say to God, give them back. And it's all right to say that. But the secret of getting manna in the wilderness is to go get a relationship. Not to go to God for what you need, but as what you need. You never know God is all you need until God is all you have. I wonder whether anyone's experienced points in their life that have felt like that. You could be in some ways in that right now where you feel things being stripped away, taken from you. And uh, I suppose, if not, one is coming. Because if this is the pattern of Jesus, if it happened to Jesus in the wilderness, and if we're following him, that means at some point we will be following him into a wilderness experience. There is manna. What is that? There is bread from heaven for you, even in the darkest of times. The end of slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil, as the Bible describes as sin, uh, is to say, all of my significance is in you, Jesus. You never know God is all you need until God is all you have. I'm going to skip ahead a few uh, verses to verse 17. It's quite small, sorry. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, and they, were m- and they measured it by the omer. don't know what that is. but The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone has gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. So I want to tell you a story. I don't have permission to share this story, but I'm sure he won't mind. It's about Ezekiel Hudson Paul. Um, <laughs> Zeke has decided that uh, he doesn't eat vegetables. Um, Ivy also went through this phase. Anything orange or green is out. Beige, fine. Um, and on Monday I uttered the dreaded words no pudding until you eat your carrots and it's like World War 3 at the dinner table it's not fair you know nibbling a little bit of carrot and then spitting it out when he thinks I can't see Um, we spent half an hour on and off the step as we negotiated the eating of these carrots, and I even let Ivy eat two lemon tarts in front of him. <laughs> That's a punishment, I don't know. Um, and after wrangling tears and anger, he was so angry, he ate the carrots and said to me, Daddy, they're actually quite nice. <laughs> Now, was I disciplining Zeke because I am a tyrant who demands control and the eating of carrots? Uh, That's probably what Zeke was thinking. (laughs) But no, I'm doing it because I love him and I want good things for him, including carrots. And in the same way, 
The Lord disciplines those he loves as a father whose child he delights in. If the Lord is going to get slavery out of the hearts of the Israelites, they have to learn that they can trust him, that he will provide for them, that he wants to sustain them. He's not like Pharaoh. This is not punitive justice, done as a punishment to keep someone down, but rather it's discipline to grow someone up. He is looking and desiring obedience And in the meantime, like a parent with a child, your disobedience doesn't cause him to hate you. Just as Zeke's not eating of carrots doesn't cause me to hate him, but rather it endears him towards us as a lost sheep in need of rescue. So much of Jesus' parables about lost things, and he didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. I find obedience to God's uh, commands quite hard, um, and especially in the wilderness. But I know within that, he is teaching me to trust him. I want to close. Like the Israelites, though I've been rescued, there are still parts of my heart and my lifestyle that still demonstrate slavery in my heart, though I am free. And I think that's probably true for each of us. But the Lord desires to make something magnificent out of you. And though I've been rescued, there are still parts of my heart and my lifestyle that still demonstrate slavery in my heart, though I am free. And I think that's probably true for each of us. But the Lord desires to make something magnificent out of you and as, out of us as a community of believers. He doesn't desire just to make us a bit better. He desires to make us glorious until we are like him, until the very Son of God is formed within us, until we are like Jesus. And we will meet again Perhaps we'll see glimpses in this life, but we will meet again and be dazzled by each other's beauty and stature and maturity of character. If we're followers of Jesus, we are assured that we are on a train bound for glory, but the journey leads us, I think looking at this passage necessarily, through the wilderness. He's teaching us to trust him. He is going after the things that we have put in front of him that prevents us from being free, that prevents us from being simply his children. Let's, uh, let's pray, and uh, I wonder, I'll just pray briefly, then we'll spend just a few moments in quiet, and we'll ask the Lord, uh, what do you want to tell me from what we've just heard in this story in Exodus Am I in the wilderness and how am I? What are you asking me to be obedient to? Where is my heart still not free? Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us now. I've spoken many words, but one word from you is so precious, Lord. 
Lord, would you minister to our hearts as to how we may be in the wilderness. What you are asking us to be obedient to. And perhaps those things that you want to just gently put your finger on and saying, you're not free here. Lord, you are the good shepherd. I pray that you would be teaching us to trust you. In Jesus' name.